Welcome once again, folks, to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Glad to have you with us here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word, in Orlando. Now, Alan Dempsey, who is uh, celebrating his 25th year uh, engineering this show, something like that, and uh, he, he gets us on the air. Andrew Herdliska is the producer. Kat Armstrong is our first guest. She's in Dallas, Texas, co-founder of the Polished Network. And her book is out, The In-Between Place, Where Jesus Changes Your Story. Kat, welcome to Orlando, Florida. How are you? Hey, Pat. I'm so glad to spend some time with you today. Well, good to have you. What what does the in-between place mean? You know, I think all of us are there right now. Whether we are feeling really acutely the in-between place in our history of our nation, a lot of unrest um, politically, racially, we've got a lot of people unemployed, a lot of people looking for jobs. Um, It's a tough spot for a lot of people. And I think on a bigger scale, Pat, a lot of folks feel like they are in between a big goal and getting there. So they feel, I joke that they might feel like they're in Stuckville. And they're looking to get out, wondering how they got in this place in life and how to move forward. So my book is about how Jesus enters a really in-between place called Samaria and has the longest recorded conversation in the whole New Testament with a nameless woman that we call the woman at the well. And I show several different ways that Jesus changes her story without necessarily changing her circumstances. And I think it will bring all of my readers a lot of hope. Kat, your book breaks down into three parts. Part one, make peace with your past. John chapter four, verses one through six. Uh, What's going on here? You know, Pat, I'm a true Bible nerd. I just love to do a deep dive in the scriptures and pull apart every little part of sentence. And the book of John is my favorite. He, He really has my attention. And if we look at the book of John, we see that this is a man who followed Jesus, an eyewitness to Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And from his point of view, Jesus is the Savior of the world. He spends his whole book talking about this. And by the time we get to chapter 4, he's kind of—John's primed us to see that Jesus is interacting with people in really unique ways. Um, We see in John chapter 4, verse 1 through 6, that Jesus has to go— to a place called Samaria. And you and I know, Pat, that Jesus is not without option. He doesn't have to do anything. And I think John's point in telling us that Jesus had to go to Samaria is that Jesus had a lot of intention in all the places he stopped along in his earthly ministry. And I think if any of us feel doubt or insecurity, fear about our in-between place in life, I think the first thing we have to do for Jesus to change our story is to make peace with our past. And I think that's why Jesus goes to Samaria. A lot of really hard things happened in Sychar, where Jacob's well was, including things like Dinah's rape in Genesis 34, uh, the coronation of King Abimelech in the book of Judges, King Reboam in, in 1 Kings. A lot of really wicked things happen there. Even the prophet Amos and the prophet Jeremiah speak very harshly about the area of Samaria. But this is a place where the most dedicated to God, the priests even, were so drunk all the time and throwing up all over the tables, the whole town stunk. Amos says that Samaria and Sychar was a place where great oppression was happening and people couldn't even learn to do what was right. This is a really bad place. And Jesus shouldn't have gone there. He should have avoided it, like all good Jews, because there was so much animosity with the Samaritans. And instead, Jesus purposes to go to Samaria, go by that well, have that conversation with the woman at the well. And I think what he does, metaphorically speaking, Pat, is he makes peace with the past of that geographical area. And it should really symbolize, should be emblematic of what he can do in our lives. He can come into the messy places in our life, and make peace with our past. Uh, Let me interject here uh, before we move on. Uh, When did you get so immersed in the Bible, so excited about it? What what were the steps? What happened? You know, I came to faith when I was 16 years old at 
Houston's First Baptist Church, and I went to the youth pastor at the time and said, I don't know anything about the Bible. I don't know the difference between Abraham and Moses. You know, where do I start? And he jokingly said, we've got a really Southern lady with really Southern hair that teaches an adult Sunday school class. And I bet you, you could sneak in. And she teaches the Bible line by line, verse by verse. And she even has study notes. She'll pass out a fill-in-the-blank study note with all sorts of biblical resources, theological commentary references. You should check out her class. Well, I've never heard of Beth Moore, but it turns out she was teaching about 600 people every Sunday morning in a Sunday school class at my church. And I started sneaking into the back, Pat. I think I was the only youth in there taking copious notes and saving all of her handouts. And because she was my Sunday school teacher, I approached her right before I left for college and said, I'm so sad. I'm going to be missing your Sunday school class because I'm moving to College Station to go to university. And she said, you know what, Kat, I think you should really think about seminary after school. Mm. And I said, well, what's seminary? I've never heard of this. (laughs) And Beth described that it was grad school for Bible nerds. And I said, well, this sounds awesome. I can't believe no one told me about seminary. And that led me to Dallas Theological. My husband and I both graduated there. And I think anyone who's in Beth Moore's orbit um, catches on to her contagious passion to study the scriptures. So was Beth Moore your Sunday school teacher? She sure was. Oh, my goodness. Tell me more about Beth Moore. What makes her so special? You know, I think when I was getting to know her, I didn't understand that she had um, any sort of persona outside of our church. She was just simply a really passionate woman about the scriptures. I think what makes her special is that really is who she is through and through. And I I asked her one time, you know, how long she taught that Sunday school class. And I I think it was over a decade that every single Sunday she was committed to being at that class, even in spite of her busy travel schedule every week. And so I think that shows her commitment to the local church. And that's certainly unique these days because you can build a platform real separate from a local church body. and, And yet she chooses to really invest there. Tell me more, uh, and we'll get back to your book, but I'm curious. Tell me more about Dallas Seminary and what that meant to you. I had a wonderful experience there. You know, Pat, I turned a two-year degree into eight years. Really? And so I really loved school, and I took my time um, because I was in sales and doing well in my career. And so wasn't really couldn't really figure out, was I going to do business or was I going to do ministry? And by God's grace, Halfway through my program at Dallas Seminary, I launched the Polish Network, which is a a national outreach. We've been around for 13 years, and we reach tens of thousands of women with the gospel. We serve working women who need authentic community and a support group to navigate their career and explore their faith. And I think my time at Dallas Seminary showed me that we can use everything we're learning about Christ, everything in our relationship with Jesus, to serve the people in our orbit, you know, the people we're influencing. And so I had a a great time there. Also, I I experienced a lot of challenges as a woman um, student there. And, you know, maybe that's a conversation for another day, but I definitely felt the support of my brothers in Christ. I also was very aware that there were people on campus who were concerned about women learning about Jesus. So I'm just really grateful that the leadership there Um, supports and partners with women. Can you name a professor or two at Dallas that really impacted you? Dr. Glenn Kreider has really become my spiritual father. He's been on the board of the Polish Network since its inception. And in a very, uh, in 2009, he taught a class and I, I joke with him. I don't remember if it was ecclesiology or eschatology, but in his course, he talked about grace in a way that I really had never heard before, Pat. I knew that I was a believer. I was certain about my faith in Christ. But he described living life in a a gracious way under God's grace. And it was so counter to something I had learned previously. Um, And so I really felt set free under his ministry. And I think my my seven-year-old son, you know, my 18-year-old marriage has been all the better because Dr. Glenn Kreider invested in me. And then I would say Dr. Sandra Glahn, she has, in my writing career, this is now my second trade book with HarperCollins, 
you know, she has been the one who's really brought me under her wing. And so I, it, there would be no polished network. There'd be no trade books. There'd be no speaking if it weren't for the folks at Dallas Seminary. What is the polished network? We've got to take a break. Ah, Kat, you're so fascinating. I just went right through the break. Uh, it's the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. More with Cat Armstrong right after this. Cat Armstrong is our guest. She's in Dallas. We're talking about her book, The In-Between Place, where Jesus changes your story. Cat, uh, we'll get back to the book. But first, I have to ask you, what is the Polish network you referred to? The Polish Network is a 13-year-old national outreach ministry to working women. We support working women who want to navigate their career and explore their faith in authentic community. We do that through a national podcast. We do it through in-person gatherings and chapters across the nation. And we do it through online events like virtual conferences and national chapter meetings. We're supporting tens of thousands of women who really want to work with other women and find faith in Jesus and also network with Christian business leaders. Let's get back to your book. It's called The In-Between Place. Now, we talked about part one, making peace with your past. Part two, find hope in your present. John chapter four, verses six through 18. Uh, Tell us what's happening now. So Jesus is in a conversation with someone he should not be talking to. This is a no-no, Pat, in every sense of the word. Jesus should not be talking to a woman alone. He should not be talking to a Samaritan. And they do not share utensils. They, Jews and Samaritans hated each other. They had animosity and arguments about where the temple should be. The Samaritans thought the temple should be on Mount Gerizim, and the, the, the Jews thought the temple should be in Jerusalem. So there was a lot of animosity, but then you add to it that this woman was of a lower socioeconomic class, or she had the wrong gender, and Jesus crosses ethnic, gender, and social boundaries to have the longest recorded conversation in the whole New Testament. It's as if Jesus's word count with this nameless woman should symbolize to us how much he cares for the vulnerable, how much he cares for the marginalized, how much he cares for women. And I think he accomplishes that. I think the way that I think the way that all of us can find hope in our present is to have a conversation with Jesus, whether it's the first one or the the first one in a long time or the series of many. But this conversation that Jesus has with her, Pat, is really unique. He entrusts some deep theological truth to this woman. He tells her that he's the living water. And it seems like she might begin to understand what he's saying, because later in the chapter, John says that she was anticipating the Messiah, and she knew that the Messiah would tell her and explain things to her. And Jesus entrusts her with the truth. He also has a hard conversation with her about a really taboo topic, the fact that she had suffered a lot of infertility and widowhood, losing several husbands, been married five times, and living as a concubine. Uh, because she had to survive under a man's protection in that Near Eastern culture. And Jesus offers himself, not in the form of a proposal, which happened a lot at the wells in the Old Testament, but instead Jesus offers his presence. And I think that is how we find hope in our in-between places. We are reminded that Jesus comes to us. We're reminded that he has a face-to-face with us and Will talk to us about really hard things in our life, and that he offers an, us a new way to live, even if our circumstances don't change. Now, part three of your book, Step Confidently into Your Future. John chapter 4, 16, all the way to 41, verse 41, um, fill us in. You know, when you're in an in-between place, when you feel stuck or depressed, really concerned about how you got here, how in the world am I going to get out? I'm between a rock and a hard place. It's really hard to step confidently into your future. And I think what Jesus does in this conversation with the woman at the well is he ends up commissioning her with truth. He reveals to her that he is the Messiah she's been anticipating. And to the shock of all of us, she believes him. And this moment's really significant, Pat. I mean, this rivals Moses' 
theophany experience with God on Mount Sinai. It it rivals Peter's admission of faith later on in the New Testament, the foundations of the, the New Testament church. And so this woman believes that Jesus is the Messiah and goes back to her people and shares the little that she knows with a very broken testimony. And her testimony is quite pathetic, actually, Pat. She says she asked her townspeople a question. Could this be the Messiah? He told me everything I've ever done. And this is really fascinating because she wasn't a credible witness and certainly didn't have a lifestyle worth listening to. And yet the people believe her. They go to Jesus themselves, ask him to stay for two days. He starts sharing and teaching more about himself, and they believe. And so we see a revival in her city. She's the first evangelist in the New Testament, commissioned to share her faith. She does so faithfully, and people come to to faith in Christ as the Savior of the world in spite of all the things working against her credible witness. And so I think those of us who feel like we're in an in-between place, we can move confidently into our future, even if we don't have it all together. She shows us that really clearly. Our guest is Kat Armstrong in Dallas, Texas. The book, The In-Between Place, In part three, Kat, you've got a chapter called No Woman is an Island. Uh, What are you telling us there? I talk a lot about, um, (laughs) I'm really independent, Pat. (laughs) I like being independent. Always have been. It's just a part of my workup in my nature. And you know what? I think I was reared that way in some ways, too. Here in the States, we love those bootstrappers and renegades and people who pull themselves up. It's part of the American story in some ways. I think Jesus shows us a different way. I think Jesus invites us to be in relationship with him, communion with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I think it's very clear that he teaches we need to be in community with others to love our neighbors. And so I'm I'm fighting a battle between what's really natural for me and what I think Jesus is calling us to do. And I talk a lot about how this woman at the well likely did feel very isolated in life. She could have been a very marginalized figure in her society and overlooked and undervalued. And yet Jesus sends her back to the people in her town. And we have to wonder what life looked like after she got back and shared the good news and they believed Jesus. I think what likely happened, which has happened to many Christians now, is we find ourselves in a new family with people who believe in Jesus, we're unlikely family members, but we are family. And so I hope to show in that chapter in the in-between place that we are not an island. We can't live that way. And Jesus has a better way for us. There's another chapter here that's fascinating. Be brave enough to ask hard questions and accept the truth. What what can you tell us more there? Pat, I find it so fascinating that she seems to deflect the conversation and ask about mountains. And until I did some academic research on this, I was so confused. Was she trying to deflect after Jesus had told her, you know, you've been married five times and you're not living with, you know, you're living with someone who's not your husband. I don't think so. This, the conversation she has with Jesus about the mountains, should we be worshiping at Mount Gerizim like the Samaritans believed, or should we worship at Jerusalem? where the Jews believe the temple should belong. This was the most important theological conversation of her day, likely the water cooler conversation. You know, you and I, Pat, we feel comfortable visiting different types of churches. But when the Jewish Near Eastern culture depended upon one temple to experience the presence of God, it really mattered who was right. And that's what she was asking Jesus. Is it this mountain or your mountain? Who's right about where I can experience the living God? And Jesus tells her. And so what I do in that, in that chapter is describe how Jesus entrusts women with deep theological truths in a day and age when that would not have been normal. And I also talk about how, you know, you don't have to have it all together to move forward, but she asked some really brave questions. And the reason it was brave, Pat, is because it was paradigm shifting. You know, it would have meant that if Jesus told her the truth about the temple in Jerusalem and she hadn't been worshiping there, she would then have to change her lifestyle and change her spiritual worship to align with what this good prophet just told her. And that would have been a big change for her. And yet she asked the question. And I love that about her. 
Uh, let me dig deeper into that chapter. Um, <clears throat> you'll never have it all together. Go anyway. What, what's up here? Yeah, Pat, I think she's a great example for those of us in Stuckville who feel like we're in an in-between place. We really haven't arrived in our relationships and our careers. We can kind of see where we want to go, but we're having trouble getting there. We're in that real liminal space. And what she shows us is that she didn't have it all together. You know, she didn't have years of theological study. She didn't divest of all the wrong decisions she had made in her life. We don't know that she course corrected in her relationship. And yet she still goes to the townspeople, compelled by Christ's love and the truth he's just told her and shares the good news that this might be the Messiah. And they end up believing. And so I think what she shows us, teaches us a really important lesson. We don't have to have it all together. We don't have to have the best testimony in the world or a conversion experience that we did a 180. We can simply have a a conversation with Jesus, believe that he is who he says that he is, and be faithful witnesses to that truth, even if we've had a really hard life. So I think she represents that. Tell me this, Kat, what do you want uh, people to take from this whole story you're telling? What's up? I really hope, Pat, that this inspires some holy curiosity. That's really my life mission. I want people to go and look at the scriptures again for themselves and to, to be inspired and encouraged and to be curious, to ask some hard questions. But with this book specifically, Pat, I'm really hopeful that people leave with inestimable hope. I mean, hope that fills them up, that they can make peace with their past. They can have hope in their present. They can move confidently into the future, even if they feel like they're in an in-between place in life. So I'm hoping that they learn how Jesus changed this woman at the well's story, and they start to apply it to their own lives. That when they feel stuck, they go, you know what? Jesus comes to me in this in-between place. Even if I don't have the energy to get to him, he's going to come to me. And when he does, he's going to have a conversation, even if I don't want to have it. And we're going to talk about real deep, meaningful things. And Jesus is going to entrust to me truth, even if I'm not ready to hear it. And I can be a faithful witness for him, even if I don't have it all together. I think that's going to bring people a lot of hope. Kat, what advice do you have for people who get confused by the Bible and they they get overwhelmed and just kind of give up? Do Do you have a interesting way to to get into the Bible and stay in it? I would say have a study buddy. I love the reading plans and I love the Bible commentaries, but ultimately our life changes when we are in community with other people and we can ask each other questions. What do you think about this? What do you think this means? And in some ways you can divide and conquer. You can say, you know what, study buddy, (laughs) this week we couldn't figure out an answer to our question. Why don't we both go looking for it and come back and discuss. Sometimes I think this could be a church leader, a church staff person. I also think it could be someone who's just a little bit farther along in their spiritual journey. I think the best way to look at the scriptures is to do it with at least one other person so you guys can have conversations about it. Uh, Kat, what's next for you? Is there another interesting uh, Bible personality you want to dive into and write about? You know, Pat, I love exploring places. I think settings in the scriptures take on a persona, almost like a character in the story. And it seems like Jesus redeems so many broken places. We'll see things happen in the Old Testament, and then he shows up in that same place in the New, redeeming the situation from the past, having some sacred echoes. I'm really interested in that. So I'm not sure what's next, Pat, but I know that I'm going to be exploring the connection between the Old and the New Testament, and how Jesus, really, he is the one we're looking to in that narrative. Kat, who is your favorite Old uh, Testament uh, personality? You know, I would have to say, well, it's such a hard question, probably Deborah and J.L. from Judges chapter 4 and 5. Those two women as a pair are really interesting. Deborah is three things that we've never seen in a woman yet in history. She was the governing force for all of Israel. She was a judge. Um, She was the leader of the army, and she was a brilliant warrior. And she um, is really, really brave. 
she's obviously married and leading the nation. Um, and then we see JL, kind of her partner in, in leadership, but JL secures a victory for the Israelites. And the Bible says that JL is the most blessed of all women. And yet, find her <laughs> taking a tent peg and shoving it through the enemy's skull and to secure a victory. And I think that these two women really go against what many women have been taught are godly examples of femininity. So I love those two women learning about how they served God and they were faithful to him. Cat Armstrong has been our guest. We've got more after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour You're plugged in to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando, and we'll be right back. Kat Armstrong, our guest in that first segment from Dallas, talking about her book, The In-Between Place. We go from Dallas to Marco Island, Florida. Uh, We've found Brian McLaren, faculty member of Living School at the Center for Action and Contemplation. His book is out, Faith After Doubt, Why Your Beliefs Stop Working and What to Do About It. Brian, welcome to Orlando. How how are you doing? I'm doing just great. Great to be with you, Pat. Faith After Doubt, Why Your Beliefs Stop Working and What to Do About It. What a title, Brian. Uh, What's all that mean? Well, uh, you you may know, uh, Pat, that... uh, over 65 million adults alive in America today grew up going to church or synagogue or some other faith community and have dropped out. Um, and for many of them, uh, this, they dropped out because of doubt. They, they lost faith either in the teachings of their church or they lost faith in the, the institution itself. And um, I was a pastor for 24 years, and through the years, I had so many people come to me with their questions and doubts, and and so I've always had a sensitive spot uh, for people who are asking honest questions and need honest answers, and because that, that, that describes me, too. Well, you open your book, <clears throat> Your Descent into Doubt, and the first topic, doubt as loss, yes. what's that mean? Well, um, I'll give you an example. I, uh, a friend of mine, uh, she grew up in a, uh, in a church-going family, and she told me she never, ever heard any member of her family make a racist statement. Um, but then, uh, over the last few years, she started hearing more and more racist statements. And she told her family members that she was very, very uncomfortable with this, and and they started now even using the Bible to justify uh, some of their views. And she realized that if she were to tell them how, you know, how much she disagreed with them, that this would create a real rift in her family. And she had to make a choice of whether she was willing to, in a sense, lose the peace of, uh, of her family by being silent or have the courage to speak up, knowing that differing would result in potential rejection. And that sort of fear uh, exists, you know, not uh, for me as a Christian, I see it in many Christian settings, but I have Jewish and Muslim friends who experience it as well. I think of a rabbi friend of mine, and she um, wrote a piece some years ago where she said, look, uh, I'm a Jew, I support the state of Israel, but I grieve when Palestinian children are killed in a bombing in Gaza. And suddenly she was receiving death threats from her fellow Jews. So um, so having the courage to differ, sometimes it takes real courage and, and leads to real loss. Now I want you to talk about doubt as loneliness. What's that mean? Yes. Well, when a person begins to wonder uh, whether some of the beliefs shared by their group are really true or not, for example, we've got a lot of conspiracy theories going out around right now. And as a pastor, I've helped many, many people who are deeply into cults. And when they, they start to want to come out of the cult or leave the conspiracy theory, they have secret doubts. They have secret questions. Maybe this isn't true at all, after all. And when they have those doubts, very often they're afraid to speak them because of the fear of rejection. And so they start to feel this kind of internal separation from their group. And uh, one of the things I wanted to do in the book is to try to name some of these challenges that people with questions and doubts begin to face. 
and so there's this feeling, I just don't fit in anymore. If they knew the real me, they wouldn't accept the real me. Now I want you to tell us about doubt as crisis. Yes. Well, for a lot of people, when, when we begin to have questions and we make the decision, am I going to go public with my questions? Am I going to let people know I'm not sure about this anymore? Uh, they face the, uh, the possibility of being rejected, and then they have to face the question, if I'm rejected by this group, who am I? And this creates what we classically call an identity crisis. Who am I? Who, who will I be? if I'm not accepted by this group anymore, if I don't fit in uh, with this group anymore. And so there's this deep social dimension to doubt. It's not just something that happens inside of our, our brains. It's something that affects all of our relationships as well. Then we go to doubt as doorway. What's that mean? Well, what happens What happened for me and what happens for a lot of people is we, we think that doubt is going to lead us to the loss of faith. But then we find out that it becomes a kind of portal into a deeper and bigger kind of faith. Um, and so uh, it, it ends up not being the end. It ends up being a kind of new beginning. And, um, and the, the word, a word that philosophers often use for this is, uh, it's sort of a, a fancy word, but it's the word liminality. Limin is a threshold. And we feel we have one foot in one room and one foot in another room, and that in-between period is, uh, is very, very unsettling for us. But uh, many of us find when we put both feet into the new room, uh, it's, not the end, uh, it's not the end of the world. It's just a new chapter in our own unfolding story. And then the final point here in part one, doubt as growth. Tell us more. Yes. Well, I, I can just use my own experience. I grew up in a very, very you know, strict and conservative Christian family. I had very loving parents, but the church that we were part of was very strict. And we were told that we, we had to make a choice. We could either believe in God or we could believe in evolution. And I was very interested in science. I was a good student in school. And I remember thinking, you know, I was 14 years old when my Sunday school teacher told me this, and I thought... Uh, four more years, and I'm really out of here. But um, but as I grew older, I had some deep spiritual experiences, and I realized I didn't want to leave my my Christian faith. I just wanted to have permission to think differently from my church. And when I uh, stayed Christian but didn't stay within the boundaries that were given me, I found out there, there were a whole lot of Christians out there who had wonderful resources and insights and fresh ways of looking uh, things. And so uh, that that became a great experience of growth for me. If I had not allowed myself to have the courage to differ, um, and if I had, uh, in a sense, tried to suppress my questions and doubts, I, I would have missed out on a lot of growth. Now, uh, let me explain what we're doing here. Our guest in Marco Island, Florida, Brian McLaren. His book is called Faith After Doubt, Why Your Beliefs Stop Working and What to Do About It. Uh, we're now in uh, part two. We're still talking about doubt, and, and your first topic here is doubt as dissent. Uh, tell us yes. more. Tell us more about that. Yes, well, uh, I, I um, talk about doubt as descent, meaning uh, a doubt as, as a feeling that we're going down. Um, you know, there's in, in Christian spirituality, there is a, uh, there's a, a teaching called the Dark Night of the Soul. It comes from some of the uh, monastics of the Middle Ages. And they, they talk about an experience that many of us share where it feels like all of, our, all of our comfort that came from our faith just disappears. It just goes away. And we lose our sense of if, if God is real, and if our faith is genuine, uh, and that sense of being stripped away of our certainty and our confidence for many people leads to this very, very dark place of feeling abandoned, and, and many of us fight that, and we resist it because it's so terrifying. But what these uh, mystics from the Middle Ages said, no, this isn't the end of your faith. This is actually kind of a portal to, to deeper understandings where 
uh, we may lose some of our illusions, but we, we gain a deeper and wider understanding. I think, for example, of uh, a woman uh, it, it, when I was a pastor who uh, who believed, who accepted this teaching that if you claim something, it will happen. Um, you claim it in God's name or in Jesus' name, and it will happen. And so she claimed that her husband was going to return from his military service by Christmas. Well, it didn't happen, and she was devastated. But what came out of that could have been a loss of faith, but instead she went to a deeper place and realized that she had a kind of relationship where she thought of God as a genie in a bottle so she could get God to do her will, and she came to a deeper understanding, no, this is really about me learning to cooperate with God and not use God as my uh, as my genie. So that's that's part of what I mean by doubt as descent. Uh, how about doubt as dissent? D i s s e n t. Yes. So dissent means to protest or to say I'm not willing to go along with something. Uh, my um, uh, my grandfather. I, I, I'm uh, in my mid sixties, so. I grew up, you know, as a kid in the era of school desegregation, and uh, and my paternal grandfather was a white supremacist. He was a, you know, wonderful grandfather, very nice to all of us, but he believed in white supremacy. And my dad raised me so differently. And I remember once we were taking a long walk, actually here at the beach on Marco Island, and I said, Dad, what? What changed you? You're, you, 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 are, you are always so different than your father. And he told me the change for him had been being in the military. He went in, in uh, the Korean War. He worked side by side with soldiers of different races. He realized that what he had been taught, he no longer believed. And so you just realize how it takes courage for people to help us move forward, to have the courage to dissent and say, I no longer believe that. I think that's wrong. I think that's harmful. And that's part of the doubt process. And one of the reasons why, even though so many people, especially religious people, only think of doubt as a problem, I actually see it as a, uh, as a gift, as a necessity. Brian, now explain to us doubt as love. What's that mean? Yes. Well, when, when you think about uh, the, the predicament of a person who is going through uh, a period of doubt. Very often they're having to decide between two loves. They love being accepted by their community that accepts them based on their continuing beliefs, or do they actually love the truth? And, and that, that commitment to love the truth, to care about the truth no matter where it leads you, to openly want to seek the truth even if it's costly, that's a pretty precious gift, and sometimes it takes a period of doubt to help us discover whether and how much we, we really love the truth. Now explain to us the next topic, a human problem. Yes. Well, you know, I, I'm writing as a, a former pastor and as a committed Christian, primarily to Christians, but the fact is doubt happens across uh, religions, and it even happens outside the world of religion. Um, so, for example, I, I have a friend who, uh, he's Dutch, he lives in the Netherlands, and he is a sociology professor. He's a brilliant, brilliant man. Um, and he loves higher education, he loves his field of sociology. But he started realizing that to be a professor meant that it was primarily only rich kids who could make it to his university. And so um, he began to have serious questions about the whole system of higher education. He thought, how can we make higher education available to people who grow up poor? He had actually grown up poor, and he, you know, uh, uh, and, and he thought, how can more people who are poor uh, get the kind of higher education that we need? And so it took him having, asking serious questions, having doubts about the way his profession is structured that eventually led him to bring a group of professors together who, uh, in addition to their paying job during the day, they started uh, teaching at, on nights and weekends in a free university for people who couldn't afford university. A beautiful project that came out of his, his willingness to raise doubts about the way his profession was set up. 
Brian McLaren is our guest. We're talking about his book, Faith After Doubt, Why Your Beliefs Stop Working and What to Do About It. We've got another segment with Brian. Stay with us. But I do want to remind you uh, that I have a new book out, just has come out. It's called The Reluctant Leader. And we look at uh, why so many people are reluctant when opportunity presents itself to step up and lead. Uh, why they're reluctant to uh, take on that responsibility. We dive into that topic, kind of a unique look at leadership. Uh, the best way to order that book is up on Amazon. Uh, just go up and get it, and it'll be at your house soon. Uh, the best way to get Brian McLaren's book, Faith After Doubt. Well, just check in with the Amazon people. We'll be back on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour right here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. In Orlando. Brian McLaren is our guest. He is in Marco Island, Florida. His book, Faith After Doubt. Uh, there's one more topic here, Brian, in uh, part two that I want you to expand on. Faith, beliefs, and revolutionary love. Explain that. Yes. Well, uh, I was brought up, as a lot of people are, thinking that what religion is. Christianity of whatever form, uh, that religion is adherence to a list of beliefs. And um, many people can't even imagine what religion would be apart from uh, adherence to a list of beliefs. But what more and more of us are are questioning is whether that's the best way to describe uh, what it means to be a person of faith. We we wonder if maybe uh, faith is more about a quest an ongoing quest. It doesn't mean we start with knowing what the right beliefs are, but that we're, we're really searching. And I, and um, I, uh, when I was a pastor, of course, I, you know, would be preaching from the Bible many times a week. And I, it was many years of preaching before I noticed this very revolutionary verse in the New Testament. It's in the book of Galatians, where uh, Paul says, um, all the things that we're arguing about in his day, there were different uh, issues that they argued about. He said, all these things aren't important. The only thing that matters, he said, is faith expressing itself in love. And so this, and, and many people would be familiar with a famous passage he wrote, it's often read at weddings, First uh, Corinthians 13, where he says, you know, that faith uh, and hope and love are great, but the greatest of these is love. And so this primacy of love, it seems to me, is one of the benefits that comes when we become disillusioned with our obsession with beliefs. We start to say, well, if religion isn't just about arguing about it has the right beliefs, what would it mean if we took love, if we took love uh, seriously? And to me, the revolutionary nature of love is love that always calls us to love beyond. Love beyond myself to my family. Love beyond my family to my neighbor. Love beyond my neighbor to the stranger, maybe love beyond the stranger to the outcast and even the enemy. So the sense of an ever-expanding circle of love, what if that is what faith is, is really supposed to produce? That's, that's, uh, that's one, I think, one of the things that people who go through periods of doubt begin to discover. Now, Brian, we move to part three, and the first topic that you write about here is communities of harmony, and then theologies of harmony. Uh, explain that, uh, both of them. What's that mean? Yes. Well, um, what, what happens uh, quite often is that our, our uh, faith communities uh, become kind of teaching stations for a list of beliefs, and then policing stations for those beliefs, and people are purged if they don't uh, uphold those beliefs. And that's just the way these organizations are set up. Um, but many of us, especially clergy like myself, are, are realizing that we want to create space for children to learn a very simple version of the faith, and then for teenagers and young adults to be able to question even more deeply. And then we want uh, adults to be able to face the deeper complexities and perplexities and mysteries of life. And so we're looking for ways to create theologies and communities, churches, congregations, where people are not uh, afraid to admit their questions and doubts, but are encouraged and welcomed to, toward growth. 
and that involves uh, some some changes that are not easy for a lot of faith communities to make. But more and more of them are 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 exploring that, and uh, that's something I'm trying to encourage in this book. Uh, let's go to the next topic: uh, spiritualities of harmony for the rising generation. Uh, tell us more about yes. tell us more about that. Yes, well, I think when we want to bring about long-term change, it it, uh, it makes sense for us to focus on children and young people, uh, because very often when folks get older, their their whole lives are entrenched in a certain system. They're familiar with it. They're making a living from it, and you know they, uh, even though many older people do go through deep spiritual uh, and theological doubt. I think we have to really pay a lot of attention to children. And so I, I, I'm asking, what would it mean to teach children faith that, uh, that was not like teaching them about Santa Claus, which we, we maybe do because we think it's fun and we think it creates wonder and excitement and so on, but eventually the children have to say, oh, that, you know, what you told me, you were just pretending. And I think we need ways of teaching our children faith that we won't have to turn around and unteach them um, when they get older. Uh, I want you to explain the next topic for us, harmony as a survival strategy. Yes. Well, um, I think not only do are we facing struggles inside our faith communities, but we're facing struggles in our politics. We're facing struggles in our economics. And in order to come up with solutions to bigger and bigger problems, uh, we're going to have to have the courage to, uh, to think in, in a wider circle. So, for example, not just to think about me, but to think about others. And not just to think about my nation, but to realize my nation is interwoven with other nations. That's one of the things the pandemic has taught us, that, that um, you know, viruses don't respect uh, borders and, and we can't uh, and uh, we, we're going to have to face how interrelated we are and if uh, my poor neighbor can't afford uh, medical care and my poor neighbor gets sick I can catch that sickness so um, so this sense that we are all interconnected is is one of the uh, is one of this kind of spiritual insights that more and more people are are coming to understand and um, and I, I think we're also coming to understand it's not just how we human beings get along with each other, but it's also how we live in harmony with the earth. And uh, this has not been something that religions traditionally have taken seriously, but going forward, it, I, it's there. It's there in the Bible. It's there in our tradition. But we've just minimized it uh, for, for a long time, and, and we're having to rediscover how to live in harmony, not just with I probably didn't even spoke with the earth itself. And then your final chapter, it's called A Civilization in Doubt. Uh, tell, yes. tell us what you're writing here. Well, I think this is part of what, we're, uh, what we see happening in our country. You know, in, on January 6th, when we saw uh, things happening we never thought we would see, uh, violence at our capital. I, I was invited as a a pastor to be part of the clergy response in Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017. I never in my life thought I would see on an American street people carrying Nazi flags and chanting anti-Semitic slogans. Um, and, and so we realize things that we thought we could take for granted uh, are now up for grabs. And we're going to ask ourselves, what do we really believe? Do we really believe in democracy? Do we really believe in loving our neighbors without exception? Do, do we really believe in equality of all people? And so, uh, and uh, do we believe science? And so all of these, uh, suddenly we look around and see things that we thought would never be uh, questioned are being questioned. And in this sense, doubt isn't just an individual problem, and it's not just a religious problem. It's really something that we're all going through, and we're either going to be undone by it, or we're going to dig in more deeply and really discover what we care about, really discover what we are committed to 
really discover our deepest values and identity. Brian, your afterword is called You're Not Crazy and You're Not Alone. Uh, give us uh, 30 seconds in closing on that. Yes. Well, so often, I, I remember feeling this way when uh, I started having questions and doubts, and I thought, I must be the only one having these questions because nobody else ever talks about them. And I go to church on Sunday, and the pastor seems so confident and so sure of everything. Uh, and, and so when people begin to have questions very often, they think, I'm the only one, and they think, something's wrong with me. But uh, one person has the courage to come forward and say, I'm not so sure about this. And then others say, oh, I thought I was the only one. It's such a relief to find that out. And then to find out, oh, you know what? Maybe we're going to be part of a breakthrough to find a better way to talk about this and respond to this. And uh that becomes the making for something beautiful and something good. Brian McLaren has been our guest. Thanks for joining us. We've got to wrap up right after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Stay tuned all day long to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Thanks so much for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. In the first segment, Kat Armstrong was with us from Dallas talking about the in-between place. And then uh, Brian McLaren talking about faith after doubt, why your beliefs stop working and what to do about it. Folks, I just want to remind you we're trying to bring Major League Baseball to Orlando. And you can be a big help. We have a website. It's called OrlandoDreamers.com. Uh, OrlandoDreamers.com, and we'd like you to go up there and just express your interest. Uh, Just simply say, great idea. I think this would be terrific. Uh, Let's do it. And you can even tell us uh, down the line when this happens that you would like to uh, be a season ticket holder. So uh, just go to the website, OrlandoDreamers.com. We're back next weekend for more. On the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour, stay tuned all day long to the new AM AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word, and have a terrific week ahead. So long.